So I think that the question that's on everyone's mind here, Brett, is are you a man who understands Muslim? <laughs> I I thought they were saying Muslim for a while. I was like, oh, are they talking about like you know, the Silk Road or something? I have no idea. <laughs> I, I I still don't know what it is. I don't. I'm not. <laughs> oh, well, I mean, since you are not a man who understands muslin, I must depart your company immediately. Uh, nobody <laughs> can see us talking together now. I can talk very casually about synthetic cotton, but that's about <laughs> as high as I go. Look, okay, he might not understand muslin, but he knows a lot about cotton blends. Right? We can start there. We can make an exception. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's get into it. This is Necromancer. Necromancer. My name is Shira, and, you know, I'm a fan of romantic comedies. My name is Brett, and I am a fan of horror movies. And we have a ghoul friend with us to he here today, Dr. Heather King. What kind of movies do you like? Oh, lately all I get to watch are movies that my children like to watch, teen sons. So I've been watching a lot of anime and a lot of superheroes lately. Well, that is definitely something that we have some familiarity with here at Necromancer. We did an anime episode uh, not that long ago, and we actually have another one that's uh, going to be coming up here that was suggested by one of our listeners. So, uh, yeah, Brett here, of course, is a fan of Castlevania, so he's seen all of that before. I'm guessing that they're not really gravitating to to all the boys I love before or anything like that on Netflix. <laughs> no, lamentably. <laughs> <laughs> now, normally each week on Necromancer, I pick a rom-com and Brett picks a horror, and then we like to flip-flop those movies around and turn the romance into a horror and the horror into a rom-com. But now that we have Dr. Heather King on the podcast, we're inviting you to pick a movie for us to go through. And I really wanted to cover Austin. So I'm just, I'm so excited to do this with you. I'm delighted to do it as well. And I hope so, you guys both enjoyed the film. So tell me a little bit more about your history with Jane Austen. Absolutely. Um, so I, it is of long standing. I started reading Austen way back in like high school. And it was pretty funny when I reread Austen in college and then in graduate school to realize what a naive reader of Austen I had been. So initially, like many casual Austen consumers, I remembered the love story. <laughs> and then when I reread it, I was like, oh, no, actually, this has a lot of social satire and it has a lot of economic reflection and a lot of philosophical discussion. So it has been an ever deepening appreciation for just how complex the novels are and how seriously they are trying to figure out how women with no professional opportunities in the world around them are limited to their marital choices really to determine their entire life. And so while the plots are overwhelmingly marriage plots, they are also moral and economic fates 
that the heroines are encountering and weighing their options between. Um, so I did a couple of courses on Jane Austen in graduate school, although my research specialty is really 18th century British, so the authors that Austen read more than Austen herself, but I've had the opportunity to teach Jane Austen courses at the University of Redlands, and I have published a couple of articles um, on various elements of Austen as well. I really like that. And, you know, especially what you're saying does maybe think about how I think what's so appealing to me about Jane Austen is how much those marriage plots are also stories about self-determination, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, but at the same time, you say the love story aspect, and that really captures everybody's imaginations. I kind of feel like Austen is to romance and romantic comedy what Stephen King is to horror. We're never going to stop adapting Stephen King novels and and nobody's going to get tired of it. And in the same way, I feel like there's been, you know, a thousand iterations of Pride and Prejudice where it's a whether it's a direct adaptation or it's, you know, you know, reset in modern times, like uh, Bride and Prejudice with Bollywood. Like right. it just, it's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> uh, and I just, I wonder what is it about Austin that's just so appealing to romance fans? So I don't know about to romance fans particularly. I mean, the, the plots, perhaps it's because with very few exceptions, she creates heroines who are really trying to think for themselves. And so that's a little avant for her time period, perhaps, although not really. That does a disservice to some other authors who haven't made it to the marquee in quite the same way that Austen did. And it's, I mean, it's kind of like the same phenomenon with Shakespeare. There were other playwrights at the same time of Shakespeare who are also quite good if you go back and look at them. But somewhere along the line, the Academy decided this was the author. And so they're the ones. He's that the we Tom know. Brady of playwrights. <laughs> he can't be stopped. Right. And there are other good coaches or players out there, right? right. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think Frances Burney, who was who Austin mentions in the novel Northanger Abbey as a, a sister author, um, so someone that Austin herself ha- held in high regard. I think Frances Burney would make fantastic movies if she were adapted today. I'm sorry, my dogs are walking around in the background. That's okay. We love dogs. Um, Well, their names are Thor and Loki. So um, if they decide to have a battle in the background, we'll just have to (laughs) accept their natures. Um, But so I think the, the strength of the heroines is appealing. I also think Austin is writing during a time period of social anxiety for a couple of reasons. Even though she doesn't talk about it very directly, the Napoleonic Wars are going on in the background, which cause a lot of anxiety in England because the British are aware that they also probably have some discontent people on the lower end of the economic spectrum and are worried about what might happen in their country as well, Um, worried about a sort of infection of rebelliousness coming over. And there has been so much upheaval in British society by this point because people are making fortunes through trade. This is the huge imperial phase of Britain when they're, you know, exploiting India. They've been exploiting the U.S. for a while. So all of these riches are coming back to the capital and sometime, and the people are coming back as well. So both in the sense of sons who've been sent to India to make a fortune. And sometimes the children, um, 
even the uh, mixed children of planters who've taken wives uh, from the native population or from the enslaved population even, all of these different forms of wealth are coming back to England and upsetting the balance of how things have been going on. So there's a lot of anxiety about how are we supposed to live? What constitutes a good life? And even though Austen's novels are full of clergymen and her father was a clergyman, the church is not actually at its height right now. It, it's Everyone still goes, but it's the 18th century was not a time period particularly known for its devotion. At the time, to us, it looks very devout. <laughs> but at the time, they felt like that had sort of fallen by the way a little bit because of the philosophical developments that were going on. There was a lot of skepticism, including with a capital S. So all of these forces, the market forces, the philosophical forces, are creating a lot of anxiety. And I think that, again and again, becomes something that echoes for us, trying to figure out with all of these changes in the world, what does it mean to live an admirable life becomes a question that we return to and that is very portable from different settings. There's a really good adaptation, novel adaptation of Pride and Prejudice that's set in Pakistan and it works really well and says some really interesting things about colonialism and empire in the process. That sounds really interesting. What's the name of that movie? It is uh, it so it's a novel, not a movie. And oh, it's it an un- oh, it's a novel. Yeah, and it's uh, unmarriageable is the title. And oh, uh, I've heard of this book. Yeah, I think it's Sonia Kamal. I'm going to have to double check the title or the author. I'm blanking on the author, which is terrible because I love the novel. You can probably hear my keyboard. Yes, Sonia Kamal. I was right. Yay, Sonia Kamal. So that I think that makes a lot of sense to me. But on the flip side, there's this other part. And it's one of the reasons that I actually wanted to start this podcast with Brett was because I was listening to my partner, Doug, talk about going to see Sense and Sensibility with his mother and how insufferable, how tortuous, how <laughs> dreadful this experience was. And I was just thinking to myself, smarm- <laughs> I was thinking to myself smarmily, like, how is this any worse? How is this comedy of manners any worse than having to see Saw or The Conjuring, or anything that's actively dreadful. I do, I I say that with full respect for The Conjuring, Brett, but Mm -hmm. something that I've wondered about for a long time is, while Austin is just a heavy hitter powerhouse when it comes to female audiences, rom-com fans like myself, she has a really low batting average with a lot of men I know. And Mm. I just, I keep wondering, what is it about Austin that doesn't work for some men. And I qualify by saying some men because I do know men who love Austin's work and who are ready to argue about why the Pride and Prejudice BBC series is better than the movie. Uh, and and they're, they're all about it. But I find a lot of men feel like almost repelled as if she were a vampire <laughs> out to get, her, get them with her manners. What, what do you feel about that, Brett? I, I, I don't know. I, I feel like when, when Jane Austen gets adapted, perhaps 
all of the stuff that makes her a good author gets lost and it mm. just becomes a product for hey girls like fashion girls like food girls like dancing this is a girl <laughs> movie like I, to be honest when i watched this movie that's pretty much all i got out of it was like this is a girl movie because it felt watered down it felt like all the stuff mm. that that it was trying to do all of the social commentary and whatnot got lost and it just became an average love triangle and it's like a flimsy love triangle at best well no there is no competition in this case like there there was absolutely zero chance that mr thorpe was going to be the guy uh no not not even not even a little bit I, I think that's so interesting to hear, though. Is that the kind of thing you would expect from your sons, Heather, and just where they are as far as Jane Austen is concerned? <laughs> I mean, it is absolutely fair to watch an adaptation of Austen and notice that, like the horror movies you're citing, it is genre fiction. And it is hitting the genre notes and working through the same tropes that you're going to see time and time again. And that can make it feel less engaging as a piece of art. So yeah, I think the adaptations are very different than the novels. Um, And yes, I think my sons would feel like they weren't really targets of the story. I think Austen's novels are written to a broader audience, although the audience is definitely focused on people who read novels. She is expecting her her audience to know. So in the novel, Northanger Abbey, which I was telling Brett, uh, as we were chit-chatting before, retains a lot of Austen's sassiness from the juvenilia because it was one of the first novels that she wrote. Um, You're like two pages from the end. Henry's just about to pop the question. And the narrator says, so Catherine is anxious, but none of my readers are because you can see I have no pages left. So you know this is about to wrap up happily. Like totally calling out the conventions that she's playing with and and um, I would say in some cases innovating on it, if, if only because she's being so obvious about them. Um, but you don't get that in the adaptations. Um, but I think the novels are aimed at a broader audience than the adaptations. The adaptations are aimed at a female audience, whereas the novels are just aimed at a community of readers. I think that's a really good point. And also to be fair to Jane Austen, romance as a category, like genre fiction didn't really exist at the time that she was writing it. So I feel like, you know, I I, I would say things like Mr. Darcy's kind of like that plot platonic ideal for a grumpy male protagonist that's just been borrowed over and over again. But nothing like that existed prior or or if it did it wasn't categorically considered romance that's something that really evolved um but i think that there's a lot of jane austen dna in <laughs> romantic fiction um but yeah your point about the narrator too makes me think that something that would have worked more for me in a movie like this and i think would be great if they readapted northanger abbey i feel like it was in 2007 it's been enough time yeah. i would want more from the narrator 
For example, we just watched uh, The Lobster that's narrated by Rachel Wise, and Mm -hmm. her narration is very sassy and counters the action in a way that's very funny and sharp. And they could have done a lot more with the narration, but it just bookends the movie. Right, right. Absolutely. They they use it to sort of fast forward you through, although it's very short in the novel as well, but to... Mm -hmm encompass Catherine's growing up but in the novel and I don't know if you had a chance to read the novel Shira but throughout the novel the narrator is setting Catherine up to be laughed at because this is very much a coming-of-age story I mean if it were written today I think it would qualify as YA or new adult fiction which is a weird category that they've just made up um but since there's no yes YA um and the narrator is constantly sort of winking over Catherine's head at the reader because Catherine is such a naive innocent as she's stumbling through these social situations. And that's part of what makes the novel really funny. And it's hard to do that in a film without alienating you from the main character in a way. So we get some of that. And I I think the performance gets across that naive, but not stupid quality that Catherine Moreland needs to have. Um, But the narrator would be more effective, I think. Right. I'm wondering if they'll do something like that with the Green Knight movie that's coming Uh out, that's starring Dev Patel. It seems like there's going to be a bit of narration interacting with the story that might make it interesting. Um, But I digress. Before we get any further, Brett, do you want to start telling us the story of Northanger Abbey? I would love to. So <laughs> I, I'm going to really quick read the um, read the description that's on the PBS page for this. This is a PBS. Oh, no, movie. Wiki, no Wikipedia help for you this time. No, this is just the short <laughs> like log line description. Okay, ready? It says in Jane Austen's gentle parody. I had no idea this it's was more a satirical. Yeah. I, I had I th- this this movie kind of plays it like it's just a straight up retelling, but it says in the gentle parody of gothic fiction, Felicity Jones plays romance addict Catherine Moreland, invited to a medieval country house that appeals to her most lurid fantasies. She forms a close friendship with the younger son of the estate, and their budding romance is mysteriously cut short. But like. <laughs> <laughs> the, the 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 idea of her having these lurid fantasies that mix in with the social structure of the movie like that sounds super interesting and i was i was on it's a board. great log line i was on board for this movie i was thinking like oh yeah this lady's gonna get him like invited to this house and then it's gonna be like uh, like in the mouth of madness with Sam Neill, and she's gonna go nuts. <laughs> like, she's gonna like. <laughs> when has that ever happened in a romance? <laughs> well, you know, it's gothic. Fi- I, I see the words gothic fiction. I see lurid fantasies. I I don't know. I just think that that's the description that's given on PBS. Now I'll go through the Wikipedia one, and I will go through it the way that it's written. So that then I can tell you why I disagree with it (laughs) or why I think like this is this is a crazy way to summarize what just happened in this scene. So we have 17 year old Catherine Moreland, who is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. Warland, 
And Wikipedia says she is a tomboy with a wild imagination. She is not like other girls. They do point that out. <laughs> she is not a tomboy in this movie, though. Like, no. No. Not at all. She there's, plays baseball, a baseball for less than one minute of screen time, <laughs> and that's <laughs> it. But, so, but uh, like, okay, so she has a wild imagination and a passion for gothic novels. Family friends, Mister and Missus Allen, invite Catherine to spend the season up in Bath, and she readily accepts. Right. So we have this lady who, uh, again, my thinking of the movie is she is into gothic stuff, and she's not into the fancy dance stuff. But then the minute she gets to Bath, she is immediately obsessed with going to balls and dinners and mingling. Of course and she is. And gossiping. That oh, is those, her life. Those aren't, those aren't mutually exclusive. And, and she's not a goth. She likes gothic. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But that'll come into play later. All right. So this is the most... This is the most important decision this girl is making to direct the rest of her life. She has pretty much no rights right. at this point in time other okay. than possibly choosing who she's going to marry. Well, you know what? Although actually, fun, fun fact, women technically had the vo could vote at this point, but they had to have enough property in their name to be able to. So women didn't lose the vote by law until into the 19th century, but it was kind of like the fact that there are no laws preventing us from flying. It's highly unlikely that we will do it, so they don't have to outlaw it. But technically, women could vote in the 18th century. I just learned about that legal wrinkle, and I find it fascinating. That is so strange. So if I were like George Washington, a rich landowner, then I could vote. Or to use an Austinian example, if you were Lady Catherine de Bourgh, she could vote. Oh, Okay. Yeah. But so few women owned enough property to meet the requirements that it was a negligible amount. And so they didn't feel the need to outlaw it. Later, they outlawed it. Sorry I, to be really something that. Suffrage. That's a, that's a good thing. I, actually, this is probably the most scholarly I can get on the show. But when Shira picked Boomerang for our Holly Berry <laughs> romance... No, you said that critics described the movie as science fiction because it portrayed black people running a successful business. And whoa, that's science fiction. Well, but all all romance is is ultimately a lot of romantic comedy doesn't necessarily exist in a in a world of reality. It's more like hyper reality. Yeah, but to me, the way that science fiction is. Like Jane Austen novels are kind of the same. Like if you have a woman doing anything other than <laughs> trying to get married to someone, that or embroidery, right? That is immediately going to throw the book into the realm of science fiction, so to speak, right? <laughs> or, or you know, to compare it to a movie we watched recently when we did dystopian movies with the lobster, you're in this society where your very survival is dependent on being able to pair up with someone else. And mm -hmm. that's not that different from Regency period. That Her entire life depends on being able to make the right decision here. Yeah. And so that's why she's so eager to get out there, right? She goes to the ball. The very first thing she does is she meets up with Henry Tilney, right? They bump into each other. And then it's super cool because he's like, wait right here. He goes, he gets the master of ceremonies, comes back, is formally introduced. And so like, 
that part is pretty cool. Like Tilney has got some swag. All right. You know who Tilney reminds me of is Nick from The Thin Man. He's one of those guys who doesn't seem like he's really paying attention, seems very lighthearted, doesn't miss a thing, doesn't miss a single detail. Yes. And he is able to skirt around the rules by playing into the rules. You know what I mean? So like he he follows the rules with just enough of a wink to kind of let you know that like I think this is silly too. Um I thought but, that was very endearing. I like that as yeah. a character versus again, I know Mr. Darcy dominates everyone's imaginations when it comes to Austin male protagonist, but I like Henry Tilney's style a lot more. Yeah, he's he's definitely one of the charming ones because he shows so clearly the distinction between social conventions that have a a sort of moral common sense foundation versus the ones that are just ridiculous agreed upon practice. And so that wink you're pointing to Brett, I think is very much, he, he would never do anything inappropriate. He would never do anything that would compromise a young woman in his company. And he gives her the credit for being able to see how ridiculous some of the conventions are and sort of shares that responsibility to follow them to protect everyone's reputation. Because if someone were compromised, that would have really serious consequences. Yeah. As we see. Yes. I mean, and he understands muslin. I feel like that's just the, that's the period. <laughs> <Even> more. <laughs> um, and then, but okay, so... Also at the party, we are kind of introduced to the Thorpes, right? Isabella and John are sneaking some peeks at Catherine from the corner and watching them from the side. And it's super creepy. And this lady with a very vivid and lurid imagination thinks nothing of it. Right? She seems suspicious of them, but maybe they didn't uh, necessarily lean into it cinematically. Is it? Does she seem more suspicious of the Thorpes in the novel? No, and actually, the the fantasizing that they show in the movie, and it it's a movie convention. There's an '87 adaptation of it as well, and I went back and was looking at parts of that before today. Um, and it's kind of stock movie adaptation convention now that they show. Catherine's imagination and she's being abducted and the 87 one, she's like in a bed sheet, not even a nightgown, Um, but the sort of figure in a white nightgown running through the dark. Um, And that's not really in the novel. The novel doesn't give Catherine because that imagination is so sexualized, right? The, the abduction is basically Catherine's sexual awakening happening. Like she kind of wants someone to sweep her off in a nightgown. And Austin doesn't go that far with it. Um, That is an understanding of the Gothic that gets talked a lot about in academic circles, but I'm not sure that it's really how it was understood in the 18th century. It, It could definitely be what was going on subconsciously for the women who were reading it, but men were reading the Gothic as well. It was, and I mean, the monk, um, and Castle of Otranto, which are two, major gothic titles were both written by men so the gothic wasn't just Anne radcliffe um so lamentably those moments of fantasy are not in the novel ah that's a little disappointing i i kind of wish that they leaned into it a little bit more 
um, rather than they kind of tease us with their fantasies a little bit. Yeah. Um, and so then the next day she actually becomes properly introduced to Isabella and John. And it's a very overwhelming thing, right? Because she's brand new into town. And not only does she have this Tilney guy who's kind of being all nice to her, she's got the Thorpes being nice to her. And it's really cool. And then, oh, yeah, her brother James comes into town and James and Isabella are kind of hooking up. So so she's got a reason to both like the Thorpes, but she's also super interested in Tilney, right? And so John ends up flirting with Catherine at the ball, and she actually wants to hang out with uh, Henry and his sister, Eleanor, um, to the point where they invite her on to a walk with them. And then the next day, who shows up to take her out? The Thorpes do. Um, the Thorpes basically strong arm and bully her into going out with them. And then while they are out, she sees Mr. Tilney and demands that John stop and he doesn't. And then he takes her away and then they get caught in the rain and then they have to turn around. But I guess I just don't understand how this, like, I don't know. The movie doesn't portray it to me as well as I would have liked that, like, this lady is conflicted between these two things of, like, yeah, she wants to be taken away, but she wants it to be done in her style, but also she doesn't know who any of these people are, and she has a vivid imagination I would be thinking, like, her mm. imagination should be in overdrive. Like, mm. all of these, to me, if I were writing this as a horror version, which I couldn't stop thinking about. I'm so mad <laughs> that I didn't get to do a horror version of this movie. I was just like, she, every character should be a potential danger or have a potential mystery or have something. But instead, this is played really straight, which is, very, very quickly into the movie, they let us, the audience, know that the Thorpes are con siblings who are basically just trying to marry their way into money so that they don't have to work. And so the fact that there's looming danger right above her that she can't see, and yet it takes her over an hour of the movie to invent something almost out of thin air, to me, that completely throws the pH balance of the movie off and it makes it more about like let's push the it's like the spark notes like let's just push the love at triangle aspect let's ditch all the gothic stuff and I would have liked to get to Northanger Abbey a little bit sooner and yeah it would have I don't know I could I could see a version of this movie where the Thorps are a bit more colorful so that your dread and protectiveness over Catherine and what's going to happen to her is more present or more active you know like we talk about showing the bomb under the table that's ticking, knowing that it's going to go off, right? And one of the things that I do feel would have worked more for me is if you knew earlier and it was less hinted at that everybody was under the wrong impression that she's an heiress. I mm -hmm. think that there are a lot of, you know, maybe older screwball comedies that really throw those kind of conventions or, or tropey, 
lies or misunderstandings at your face and they play them really big. And this movie plays it very subtly. You hear people whispering about her and saying things in passing and the way that Isabella implies that her life is going to be better once she's married to her brother and then how upset she is about the money. Um, it's all played very subtly. So you have to be paying attention to notice, oh, okay, this is where the misunderstanding is. Is that kind of where it was hard for you? I think I'm less interested in what everyone else thinks about her and more interested in what she thinks about everyone else, which for someone who reads a lot and has a very active imagination could be anything. Hmm. You know what I'm... Yeah. Go ahead. It seems, I mean, I think one of the things that your comments are making me think about the fact that what Austin is trying to do is make fun of the Gothic. And so she's not going to make Catherine quite as much as a fantasist as you're wanting for her to mm-hmm. be. And and from watching the movie, I totally get why that would be where you expect to see Catherine go more. But I think part of what is going on, Bath is so overwhelming for Catherine that it is a fantasy in a way. So she has no need to fantasize on top of it. When she's at home with her family and trying to escape her nine siblings, let that sink in for a minute, then the daydreaming and the fantasy becomes an escape and becomes a form of agency. But she's having to think for herself more in Bath than she has done before. And everything is so novel and new and exciting that there's no need for fantasy on top of it in a way. So for Catherine as a character, and then I think for what we're being given as an audience is also the fact that the biggest dangers are the ones she never thinks to look for. That Thorpe really, I mean, Thorpe, does kind of kidnap her and she doesn't like it. So it shows that the Gothic fantasy that she thinks she wants actually is pretty repellent when it really happens. And so I think it's actually building up that contrast between the dangers of the real world and the imagined dangers of the Gothic and, and showing how the ones you have to watch out for are the ones that you might not suspect because this is your best friend's brother. Why would he be a threat? Right. This is someone that your brother is friends with. Certainly he shouldn't be, you know, Montoni or somebody from a gothic romance. Um, So I think in a way that's Austin's subtle criticism of the ways in which patriarchy is dangerous for women. Um, It's not as interesting as the gothic, perhaps. but (laughs) I think that as a horror fan, it would be super awesome to see everything that you're describing. But like when she goes to bath, it's so it's, it is so overwhelming for her, but it would be nice to see even as overwhelming as bath is with all the stuff she's only been able to read about. If like, you know, the, the, the mortar for the bricks was like, just a little bit more Lynchian. (laughs) That would be pretty cool. You know, just a little bit more like, ethereal a little bit more out of place it would be just a really weird place (laughs) yeah just cinematically would be nice but also i mean again this is like i'm glad that i knew this was a pbs movie when i went into it because there is a certain (laughs) production like pbs just can't 
they can't go up with someone like James Wan. <laughs> like the production value of this isn't <laughs> going to be The Conjuring. Um, but, I could see well, kind of, no. <laughs> oh, go ahead, Heather. I was going to say I could see a kind of eyes wide shut unrealness yeah. to the ball scene. So the colors are a little more lurid, and the and it feels a little. Because the the description in the novel and they try to get it across in the movie, although it doesn't really come across, is they enter the assembly and they can hardly move because there are so many people. And you definitely could have played that for more unease and more uh, being more alarming in a way. I could see some maybe even a little touch of Cronenbergian body horror. Everybody's sweaty and smelly oh, and it's <laughs> just a... Yeah, it's just a a crush of people. You know what I was thinking though, Brett? One of the things that you always really go for in a in a horror movie or an action movie is this idea of the risk assessor being becoming the risk taker, and I feel like this movie's the flip side of that. Catherine wants to be the risk taker. She wants to go yeah. on the adventure, go get abducted, go to the spooky room that nobody allows her to go into, but she becomes a risk assessor. She realizes, oh, all of these risks I'm taking have consequences, consequences that I then have to deal with or that take me away from the things that I would really like to do, like go with that cute guy Tilney on a walk instead of being in the pouring rain with these sheep. <laughs> Uh, all right. Where were we, Brett? So she discovered that being with the Thorps wasn't all it's cracked up to be. Not everything it's cracked up to be. So next thing they do is they go to the opera, right? And um, and so at the opera, Tilney sees her with the Thorps. And then on their way out, there's kind of a little bit of a confrontation. And what I usually hate about these kinds of movies are the fact that some things could really be solved with just one simple line of dialogue <laughs> but i think this movie does a really good job of like she tells tilney hey the thorps like tricked me and tilney pretty much right away is like yeah that sounds like a thorpey kind of thing to do <laughs> like i'll give you the benefit of the doubt <laughs> yeah, i remember him saying that too yeah um and so i really like that and so to put it in superhero terms it's like in uh infinity war when the guardians of the galaxy meet up with Spider-Man and Iron Man and Dr. Strange, and they all get their little super move in. And then they're like, you're friends with Thanos. No, you're friends with Thanos. And they're like, Oh wait, we should just team up and fight Thanos together. Like, <laughs> so you're saying that it would have been better if she just went up to Tilney and said, Martha. And he was and like, yeah. how do you know that name? yeah exactly which is, the, uh, which is heather is a reference to batman versus superman right, right. she should have flipped him with her webbing um <laughs> meanwhile but, i'm thinking austin assemble right, yeah austin, uh, um, austin yeah, heroines austin with superpowers it's a comic oh. i would read yes Heck yeah um and so then let's see where are we now um so, yeah, she talks to Tilney, and they kind of set up a second a second date, right? It's a second and chance. A second chance. Um, during all of this, uh, John tells Henry, so the bad guy tells the good guy's dad, 
General Tilney that Catherine is the Aelins' heir, and the Aelins have money, but the the Morlins do not. So everyone is just, not because of what she said, but just because gossip, just because of the hot goss, is that she must be rich. She must be getting all that sweet, sweet Aelin money. And so... <laughs> Then the general invites her to spend the day with the family. But why? So why does John tell the father that? What's his plan there? So it's explained in the novel. You're right that it's not explained in the movie. Um, right. John Thorpe is such a braggart. And you he's even more repugnant in the novel. The, the movie was too kind to him. <sighs> No, They're, they should have made him worse. That would have been so much more fun. Yeah, they really should have. I mean, he's terrible in the novel. When they go out for the drive, he does this whole like, oh, now don't be alarmed at the horses rear and buck. They're so spirited. It's all I can do to control them. But I'm a master dry horseman, so I'll keep them under control. And he starts them and they start very placidly and go very calmly. And Catherine's like, oh, he must be really good. And the, the narrator is like, yeah, this guy, this guy. <laughs> Um, so Thorpe, at the point when he's talking to Cap to General Tilney, he has designs on Catherine. And so it is his vanity that makes him inflate her wealth so that he looks like he's making a better match. He, he genuinely is wrong about how much the Morelands has. He, how much they have. He thinks that James Moreland is going to have more money than he does. And that's part of why Isabella is pursuing James. So he's genuinely wrong, but the novel actually breaks it down that he doubles his already inflated number of what the family has. And he invents an aunt who's going to leave them money. And he throws in the Allens and he makes the Allens richer than they are. And he like triples some other number. So he just inflates everything to make himself look better. Yo, this guy sounds awesome. Yeah, he's oh, we missed out on to, such a great guy. Uh, yeah, such a great, cool. terrible character. I wonder who would play him now if we were to do another adaptation of Northanger Abbey. Who would be just a, just a perfect scoundrel? Maybe that guy who plays Charles on The Crown. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, oh, that they really missed an opportunity to bring yeah. some color to that character. You also bring. Line. You also bring up something that I noticed and I wished was more of a comedic beat in the movie, which is, well, Catherine is is concerned with these potential murderers and ghosts and vampires and all of that. Equestrian manslaughter is only one step away every day, wherever you go. John almost kills that guy. And Who's then later... Uh, yeah, and then later, uh, what is it, General Tilney or, or, yeah, he almost kills someone on the way out of Bath. It, this is a real problem in the Regency era. These horses are going to kill someone. <laughs> I would, you know, maybe I would make my remake, my horror remix about that. Just, just <laughs> the the dangers of both bad men and horses everywhere. <laughs> That's the real scary danger. <laughs> well, and then we could, I'm going to blank on the title, but um, 
uh, Lakeith Stanfield was just in a film about telemarketers and they turn into like weird oh, yeah. half horse people. Yeah. Sorry so to bother you. Sorry to bother you. Yeah, That's yeah. it. I, I keep making it, pardon me for calling, but sorry to bother you. We, we could bring that into Bath maybe. You walk into oh, the ball yes. and they're like half horsemen. Well, that yeah. would fulfill your requirement for it to become Lynchian, Brett. <laughs> yeah, so I think we've decided that this movie needs more Spider-Man, more horse people. <laughs> we're, ma- we're making a good movie here. Northanger <laughs> Abbey, the novel, is perfect, but the movie... No. Um, when it comes to stuff like John telling Henry that she's rich and that making him want to invite her and stuff, I totally get that pretty much every question I had about this movie... I was pretty certain was going to be solved by the book. Um, And so, yeah, um, the general does. The general invites Catherine out to the place. And then Catherine is delighted to accept. She's like, heck yeah, she likes Henry. She likes Eleanor. They both like reading. They give her books to read. They actually talk to her like she's a cool person instead of trying to manipulate her and make her do stuff. Like, yeah, she's totally on board to hang out with these guys. Um, And then on her way home, Isabella tells Catherine that she and James are engaged. And then immediately as this happens, James and John announce that they both have to leave Bath for a few weeks. And he's going to get an engagement ring, right? Is that the only reason why he's leaving? Um, No, so James is leaving to officially get his parents' blessing and figure out what the settlements will be, the sort of legal component of their financial setup. Um, and John is just going with him and helping. He's a good and guy. That's all added for the movie. They John's a good guy. <laughs> Such <laughs> a good guy. The, the, yeah, the best of guys. Um, <laughs> and man. so... One of the cool things that I do like about John as a villain is he is immediately like, hey, they're going to get a wedding ring. Pretty cool, right? Hey, while I'm there, I'll get one too. You know what I mean? <laughs> She's like, yeah, that's great. You should get a wedding ring. And he's like, yeah, you like weddings? She's like, yeah, I think weddings are pretty neat. <laughs> and like, she is completely oblivious to the fact that he right now is uh, once again bullying her into an engagement, which kind of snowballs later with Isabella spreading the rumor. And you have this idea that is tickled upon in the movie, but this idea of like the quote unquote hashtag fake news about the idea that anyone could say anything about you. And then the next thing Mm. you know, it's true. So even if she were in her and Tilney were to actually start a genuine romance, it would immediately be in danger because everyone would, think oh she's cheating on john yeah well and this is kind of i think it stays in the movie well enough and it's kind of brilliant in the novel um when she is dancing with tilney they have that whole conversation where he compares dancing to marriage and the he calls out the power dynamic that in both situations men have the choice and women only have refusal they don't have any the ability to make a choice themselves. They just have to sort of wait to be asked. Um, And we see John Thorpe both mistreat her as a dance partner because he engages her for a dance, which according to etiquette means she cannot dance with anybody else until she's danced with him. And then he 
is off talking to a man about a horse instead of there to dance with her. So she's having to sit out a dance and just twiddle her thumbs until he gets back. And then we see his so-called proposal being a very similar like, oh, I'm just going to have this stupid conversation with her and then assume a sense of propriety over her, ownership over her. Um, so there's a way in which Tilney's joking metaphor actually reads across the novel in Thorpe's behavior as well in a very revealing way. Yeah. Just the arrogance of Thorpe. I, man, I really wish that we'd gotten to see more like the novel Thorpe because there's, I just, there could have been a lot of comedic opportunities there and a lot of narrative winking. And it would really heighten the sense of discomfort if they really leaned into what a douche canoe he is. So. <laughs> it's an yeah, I, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and so then again, Wikipedia is a little bit weird because it says that John leaves believing she is in love with him. That is specifically false. John is, is very clearly specifically going out of his way to trick other people into believing that she is in love with him. Um, but I guess the idea that this is a parody or a satire and that she might be unaware of the wolf in sheep's clothing that's right in front of her, like, I guess all of that was kind of lost on me because she seems like she should be able to handle herself. But at the same time, she does a lot of really naive things. And so that just, it muddies the waters for me. Um, yeah. And then... Isabella, this is where more typical love triangle stuff. Isabella catches the eye of Henry's older brother, Captain Frederick Tilney, and she flirts with him. And then, boom, it's very clear. As soon as she learns that actually James isn't going to really have that much money and Frederick Tilney has super duper money, she immediately jumps ship to get in bed with Frederick Tilney, who immediately is like nope one and done wham bam thank you ma'am get out to the party your friends are going to be talking about you uh this never happened and so all of that happened super quick yeah and the the sex is andrew davies addition to it that's not actually in the novel it it stops Uh, movie choice yeah, and there is there is a lot of offstage sex in austin um particularly sense and sensibility but it's unlikely that Isabella took it, but she's just too savvy to let it go that far because she's risking too much. Um, You know, God forbid she end up pregnant or something like that. She, she's out of her depth with Frederick Tilney, but she's not an idiot. So I think it's unlikely it works for the movie, but I suspect it's unlikely. And I mean, it's Carrie Mulligan. She's a very (laughs) promising young woman. (laughs) Indeed. Um, and so I do like that, though, how immediately the um, the Tilneys, I think it's both of them. Um, what's what's his name? Henry. Henry and Eleanor are both like, whoa, <laughs> like that's not going to like th- she is way out of her element here. Um, you're out of your element, Isabella. And and I do like it when when um, Catherine begs Henry to tell Frederick to 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 leave Isabella alone because Isabella is quote unquote engaged to James. I'm terrible with names, so this is really hard right now. You're doing great. And he's and he's like, 
um, you don't have to worry about it because he's going away and and James is coming back to town. Like there is literally nothing to worry about because this is going to resolve itself one way or another. And it's kind of up to her how it resolves because either she can spill the beans or she can try to snake her way back into society by marrying James, who is now a, a dud. So meh. all of this is backdrop to Northanger Abbey. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, at Northanger Abbey, (laughs) we needed needed a a beginning scene to like build up the the myth of Northanger Abbey. There was there was no myth building. Um, That would be cool. You know what would be great would be uh, Heather. Have you seen the Carrie Fukunaga Jane Eyre adaptation? I don't think so. No. Um, it's the one that has uh, your one of your favorite actresses, Brett Mia Wasikowska. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah and and uh, Michael Fassbender is Mr. Rochester. Uh, but the he he has a very interesting take on Rochester. I'm I'm kind of a fan of uh, Timothy Hutton's Crazy Rochester, but that's neither here or there. Um, oh, the stand <laughs> Oh, Syrian, I I still need to check that one out. But one of the things that this modern Jane Eyre does is they kind of make it more mysterious by putting it in flashback. So the movie begins just as Jane Eyre is leaving um, Thorn, um, I can't, yeah, Thorn Hall, uh, yeah. And I would have liked to see something where, again, if we were to do... Uh, redo of Northanger Abbey, start the movie as Catherine is forced to leave Northanger Abbey in the middle of the night and then uh. flashbacks learning about what happened and you can get the you can get the gothic version and the real version. That would be very clever. Yeah. And I mean Brett, you were saying at the top of our conversation that it and I think Sherry, you agreed that they spend so long in Bath and you really wanted to get to Northanger Abbey. Like, why are we in Bath? Um, and I think it's part of that two sides of the story thing, Sherry, that you just mm-hmm. want, that what we see in Bath is Catherine learning to make distinctions between who she can trust and who she can't, because she's never had to trust her own judgment before. This is like first semester freshman year making friends completely separate from any context and trying to figure out who you can trust and who you can't because she's 17 right and away from home for the first time and we see her learning how to do that better and there are descriptions in the novel about you know even though he was Isabella's brother she couldn't help but think that maybe John Thorpe really wasn't all that and she it pained her to it and so she she struggles to kind of trust her own judgment. And when she's pressed to do it, like when they try to force her to go on the carriage ride and she tries to fight back against it, she does have a backbone and she can follow through on what she knows to be the right course of action, but she she really distrusts herself. And in a way, we see that confidence miscarry when she gets to Northanger Abbey and gets caught up in the Gothic delusion and she has to sort of take a step back and reassess. and you haven't gotten there in the summary yet, but that's one of the things I think is weak about the movie. Um, but it it really is about her learning to judge the world around her a lot 
And so we need the contrast of her learning how to do that in the real world and all the things that she misses and then trying to do it in the Northanger Abbey world and how astray she goes with it. Yeah. So let's um, get there. Tell us what happens, Brett. All right. So Catherine gets to Northanger Abbey and she is beyond thrilled, even though this is a creepy old building. Um, That's she's what weird. she likes. She's weird, right? She reads books. Okay. That's pretty weird. Um and so, again, like I, this, the fact that this movie is only an hour and a half does the story a disservice because immediately her overactive imagination leads her to believe that General Tilney murdered his wife. And there's really zero reason to believe it. Like, there's not even a moment where a character gives her a little bit of a, like, oh, she was fine when she went to sleep that night. It was just like, oh yeah, our our, our mom died, and we were out. Yeah, there's no crazy maids. Like, <laughs> uh, I need I need more Stephen King in the book of you know more. Don't go down that road over there. You, so um, you would have preferred it if that lady who was holding the goose in the mail carriage just started going off on a tear, like, oh, let me tell you about Northanger <laughs> Abbey. Yeah, sit um, down. <laughs> and so, um, so. It's pretty cool because she does try to like convince Eleanor to show her the room and she does a very good job of it. She's very convincing. She's like, but how am I supposed to see how pretty your mom is if I don't see the picture? And she's like, all right, let's go into the room. But General Tilney, you can't go in there. You absolutely can't go in there. So General Tilney leaves. She thinks she's all alone. Uh, Catherine does. So she goes into the room. She looks at the picture. And then she doesn't even really do any snooping, right? She just immediately gets busted. And then Henry is able to coax it out of her very easily that she, what her, her theory is, which is she thinks General Tilney killed the mom. And he kind of flips out on her. But at the same time, he also is like, I, I don't know. He does say you read, maybe you do read too many books, which is very silly to me, the, the the boy version of that is like <laughs> it's like Jean Claude Van Damme, right? At the beginning of the what? movie, what Jean Claude the... Van Damme is Henry Tilney? No, no, no. Jean Claude Van Damme is He's doing the splits all over Northanger Abbey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the beginning of a Jean Claude Van Damme movie, they give you a little tease at the beginning, right? Like, hey guys, this Jean Claude Van Damme guy, he's pretty flexible. And then at the end of the movie. He does the splits over a counter with water that's electrified or something. So like, oh, he did the splits and it's like the crowd goes wild. Ah. In this movie, it's like at the beginning of the movie, like, hey, women who read too much, pretty crazy, right? And then at the end of the movie, they're like, hey, lady, you read, you're crazy. Ah, and the crowd goes wild. Ah. Like, so this was that moment for you? Yeah, this was Catherine <laughs> doing the splits. She was like... <laughs> She had to do her trademark move. She read too much. Her imagination got in the way. Um, <laughs> and so, so she is totally embarrassed. General Tilney comes home. Tilney's in a tizzy because he is upset <laughs> at Catherine. And Eleanor has to be the, the, the go-between person who basically says, listen, what you did was so bad, you have to leave right now now 
and she has to leave on the public coach. She's just dumped off in the middle of nowhere, rides home with a bunch of strangers. And again, you're right. This is her fantasy. She wants to be out in night with danger and strangers. And yeah, she wants all this, but now she does it's not, not romantic. It. it is not. So, um, also, a little bit before this, Catherine does get a letter from Isabella asking her to apologize to James. In immediate, she's like, hell to the no. <laughs> like, no way. I don't like her. I don't like her brother. At this point, she's kind of realized things. Did she get the letter from her brother in the movie? I'm sorry. I did just rewatch it, and I'm forgetting now. The novel and the movie are fighting for space in my brain. <laughs> I think that she just gets the letter. Well, I think she mentions the letter from her brother about the broken engagement. And then Isabella sends her the letter later. Yeah. Um, and yeah. And so then the, the most bizarre thing that happens, which again, Dr. Heather King can, can explain to us why it's, <laughs> it's better in the book because it sounds more interesting and playful and, Deadpool and meta in the book, but she goes home. She is home for a day or two. Tilney comes back and says, I love you. And then they get married. And that's the happy ending is like with three minutes left in the movie, there's a nice little bow tied on it. And again, <laughs> I feel that this version of the movie is playing it pretty straight. Mm. Whereas what you're telling me in the novel, it's like, yeah. It's more wink, wink, nudge, nudge, more playful, more. It's much more. I'll find you the line, actually. Um, well, we, we don't actually quote books on the show. We'll talk <laughs> about them. No, hey, we're breaking new ground here. I brought Heather on to be the leader of this frontier, reading on the podcast. I want to hear it. <laughs> where, where no nerd has gone before, huh? Um, oh no, we're there. The, we're those nerds. We're definitely those nerds. Um, so uh, the anxiety. So this is after Henry has arrived at Fullerton and has proposed and everything. The anxiety, which in this state of their attachment must be the portion of Henry and Catherine and of all who loved either, as to its final event, can hardly extend. I fear to the bosom of my readers, who will see in the telltale compression of the pages before them that we are all hastening together to perfect felicity. And it's like two pages before the end of the novel. Um, so she's totally saying like, I have no time to do anything else. Clearly, you know where this yeah. is headed, reader. And then on the very last page is Deadpool doing the end credits of Harris <laughs> Miller's Day Off. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty transparent, Brett, but I don't think it's that transparent. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. Yeah, at the end, she's like, listen, like you you think you thought I was building up to this thing the whole time, but no, that's not what the book is yeah. about. Like, I do like that dis that distinction between like, the love triangle in this movie isn't a triangle. It's a, I don't know what shape it is, but it's. It's an isosceles triangle. It's an isosceles triangle. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's pretty cool. So does the, does the voiceover at the end bring in the line about parental tyranny? Yeah, it does. It's parental it's, tyranny versus filial disobedience. Yeah, oh, which yeah. is the actual last line of the novel, but without more of the voiceover, it doesn't, because what the narrator has just said is because General Tilney is, is, is being a jerk, 
It's like, I'm not going to approve. You're marrying her. She has no money because so he comes back so mad from London because after having puffed Catherine up so much to make himself look better, Thorpe now has done the exact opposite and made her, I mean, practically said that her parents are drug addicts and her sisters are all prostitutes, like makes the family seem really, really terrible by comparison because now he knows she's not going to marry him and he's mad at her. Um, so he talks her down and that's why General Tilney freaks out. And so until Henry can convince General Tilney, no, no, they're solid middling sort. There is some money, not a ton. He won't permit them to marry or he won't give his blessing to the marriage. And Catherine's parents won't let her marry without the general's approval. They don't care if he gives them any money in the marriage, but they don't want their daughter to marry someone against the wishes of their family because that would be risky. Um, I like this General Tilney guy too, because in the book it's like, <laughs> hey, she's rich. We must have her over. And then like, hey, she, she actually isn't as rich. Get her out of here. That's, like, that would that's be exactly great. it. And they and Davy gives the line to Henry Tilney, which makes it a little too on the nose because he says you were wrong about his being a murderer, but you weren't wrong about him being a bad guy in case the reader didn't get it or the viewer didn't right. get it. That's that's what we're supposed to get as readers of the novel is she's actually right about the general, even though she's wrong. And so the improved ability to judge people that we see her developing in Bath looks like it's gone astray at Northanger Abbey, but she's actually been right all along. And that world of Gothic threat and the world of real patriarchal threat actually come together in that way. Um, and General Tilney is terrible. But so the narrator is making a joke at the end that by having forced them to postpone the wedding, they actually had more time to get to know one another. So the engagement lasts about a year. And so he did them a favor because the marriage will be more stable and happier because they've had a chance to get to know each other first. And so that's why it's kind of a joke at the end. Like, I don't know if this story is now in favor of parental tyranny or filial disobedience, but it's going to be a happy relationship because of how everything worked out. It's not quite dead. And it was all, it was all because of the general, (laughs) (laughs) your favorite character, Brett. (laughs) (laughs) Um, To take a stand. Right? That's true. He he does move. He moves the players where they need to go. I think that's a really good point. Uh, so it, it, just oh. to sum up this movie super quick. Uh, yesterday, I watched a movie where Felicity Jones uh, has to rebel against uh, an empirical group of boring, stuffy old British white men. Oh, you but mean Northanger Abbey? About- but enough about Rogue One, a Star Wars story. <laughs> well, she's clearly had the training for this was this was what she needed to do to get to Rogue One. There would be needed, no rug, Rogue One without Catherine Moreland. This movie needed more Spider-Man, Horse People, and Donnie Yen. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's, that's my version of the movie. But so I hadn't even thought about it. You know, the, the tower has a very gothic look at the end of Rogue One, right? <laughs> yeah. Rogue I love Rogue One so yeah. much. But um yeah, I knew the moment I got off or the moment I, I the the credits hit this movie, I texted Sonia, my wife, and I was like, oof, I did 
not like this movie at all. And then I was like, but I'm, I, I'm glad that I watched this one because talking about it with a Jane Austen expert sounds like it's going to be super interesting because the movie, yeah, I, the story did have a lot of potential and I like it more now that we're coming out of an actual conversation about the movie. You see, this is what the podcast is all about. They have cooties. <laughs> this is this is what it's all about. Getting to expose each other to something different because I think that you and I have very different brains when it comes to viewing movies or or viewing stories and and Heather you you have a probably even more different brain from us because we're <laughs> we're a couple of nerds as we said. Uh, so I I like I like gathering all the different perspectives together to come out with that different remixed view. Yeah, definitely. So is it time to ask the question, who would we yeah. kill from this movie? We've got to ask. <laughs> all right, Heather, who would you kill? 100% John Thorpe, messily, painfully, embarrassingly. Yes. Yeah, I, I have to agree. I, I was tempted to say Captain Tilney because he's just really awful, but he's just, he's just so o- he's just so obviously awful. It's like, yeah, we get it. But John Thorpe, especially the way that you describe his novel form, he he deserves the wrath, I think. You know, I might crush on his novel form a little bit. That sounds like <laughs> a great villain. That's like an Anshuman crush. Like, this, the guy, the lady clearly isn't supposed to end up with him, but I'm having a great time watching him fail miserably. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, and um, I was going to say, one of the things that I always try to um, open up for male readers of Austin is that she's actually giving really good advice to men as well. Like she's showing, you know, Pride and Prejudice is the one that everybody knows. She's showing that even if you think you've got all of the attractions, you've got to get over yourself to be able to actually be a decent partner. And John Thorpe is kind of the, you know, you've got Henry Tilney and John Thorpe and Captain Tilney as possible mates out there. And it's clear which one is worth the investment and which ones are to be avoided at all costs. So she's, she's giving models for male education as well. Definitely yeah. be the Tilney as, as attractive as the general and Thorpe may seem to you right now, Brett. <laughs> um, actually, if I had to kill someone just to spice things up, maybe Mrs. Allen, cause she doesn't really do her any favors either. She's kind of like, why not Mr. Allen in case he gave her that inheritance after all? No, because he had the crutch and he was he ran out of the way of a horse. He almost got horse sided. Like <laughs> I don't know. Equicited. Yes. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't know. That would be I do think though two quick things about Mr. Tilney. I loved it when he's when she was like, hey. What if I'm not really rich, though? What if I'm poor? And his line about it being a test of character, where he's basically winking at her, going like, "Like it wouldn't be easy, but we could work it out." Like to to establish that super early in the relationship, I thought was really cool, and I liked it when she was like, "Hey, I'm kind of having some second thoughts about this Thorpe guy, this John Thorpe. He seems a little weird. What do you think?" And he's like, "Honestly." You shouldn't ask me 
because if you're asking about romantic advice, I'm one of the players in that play. <laughs> like, I can't be giving you good advice. So I like, yeah, Tilney was pretty awesome. Um, and yeah, I'd love to see a movie where Tilney and and uh, Thorpe kind of are are way more disproportionately likable. <laughs> and they have to go at it. Um, but yeah, so yeah, I, I thought Tilney was great. I thought J.J. Field did a really lovely job with the character because he needs to be a little bit pompous at times when he's teasing, but also to be, you know, sweet and brotherly in a way. I, I think it's significant that Catherine kind of falls in love with both Eleanor and Henry. And it really has, not in a weird incestuous way, but has this very familial vibe to it. Because if you can't get along with your partner's siblings, there are going to be problems, right? Um, and Catherine is just eager to learn from anyone who will teach her. I think that's a really good point. Yeah, I, I'm I'm totally aboard the Tilney train. So Heather, you said that you wanted to, you knew how you wanted to horrify this movie, which I, I'm really excited about. You know, we like to give our guests a choice. So if you are somebody out there who's interested in being a ghoul friend, don't worry. You don't necessarily have to create something. You can be like Jessica and we'll will pitch to you, but Heather, you came in and said, no, I've got this. I've got something. So that, that really excited me. And I'm curious to know how, how was the process of writing a little remixed pitch of this story? Well, I didn't go so far as actually writing anything up. So this will probably be a little on the sketchy side, but I'm hoping that means there's elevator pitch. Yeah, and I'm hoping that means there's room for you guys to talk about what you do with it, too, because I'd be interested in hearing that. Um, I had two different ways that I thought about going with it. One is really obvious, and that's just leaning into the gothic and having Catherine be right all the way and having General Tilney actually be a murderer um, and playing that up. And so that Eleanor and Henry are aware of their father's murderous tendencies, you can, you know, go as far with that as you wanted. Maybe Frederick is sort of in the family business, so to speak. And so there are things being covered up, bodies being hidden, et cetera. And Catherine kind of escapes, um, pursued (laughs) perhaps by General Tilney or Frederick. Um, But then because that's so obvious, I thought it actually might be really interesting to have some some contaminant in the spa water that everyone is drinking in the pump room (gasps) that like turns them into, I was thinking zombies or cannibals or cannibals actually would work really well as a social metaphor because everybody is trying to profit off of everybody else. And when General Tilney is viewing Catherine as a fortune that he's trying to obtain for his family, that's a cannibalistic attitude to have towards another person. So I think the spa water turns them into cannibals Henry and Eleanor are too sensible to drink the spa water because it's basically quack medicine. So they're not affected by it. But Isabella and Mrs. Allen and Mr. Allen's bathing in spa water for his gout. So all of these people are becoming increasingly cannibalistic. I couldn't decide whether Catherine would have drunk it or not. I ultimately decided yeah. not because in the movie, she puts down a full glass that she hasn't oh, yeah. out of yet. So she escapes by luck. Um, this means, of course, that we could imagine scenes where Isabella and John Thorpe are eaten <laughs> by, 
<laughs> oh, they would, they'd got to go. They got to yeah. go in the horror <laughs> version for sure. <laughs> Although maybe John Thorpe becomes a sort of ravening cannibal and has to be killed in combat by Henry Tilney. I think I like that. Um, and I couldn't decide whether Eleanor was safe or at risk. So I couldn't decide whether Catherine was the final girl or whether we actually get two. Um, Cause I really like Eleanor. So I would hate to see her die. Maybe she's rescued yeah. by the guy that she meets in the woods on the walk. Um, so yeah, that was my other idea that the spa water uh, causes cannibalism. Oh, I love that idea so much. I The second idea is great. And I also just like the idea because one of the things that I think makes a lot of, you know, romance or rom-com film fans gen- uh, gravitate towards Austin and Regency is aesthetically seeing, you know, the period costumes and the way that people conducted themselves. And to go from this comedy of manners where everybody's buttoned up to people wearing cravats covered in blood and, you know, police is all torn up and, and all of that. I, I would have a field day with the set dressing of this movie. And yeah. I could see you even having a kind of a pressure cooker close proximity thing where the survivors have boarded themselves up in the bathhouse or the tea room. The tea room becomes the base for the survivors. Yeah, oh, it would be. I think. I think people would enjoy it. I think moviegoers <laughs> would would flock to the audience. Brett would be there, right? I would. Yeah. Anytime <laughs> there's cannibalism involved, <laughs> that's all I need. Um, What's for dinner? <laughs> um. Yeah, I like. Ooh, that. And you could I call like it North Hunger, Abby. Oh, oh, I like that. I was wondering if your retitle might be Northanger Stabby. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I like Northanger Abbey. I, I like that a lot. <laughs> Brett, you did say that you were thinking a lot about what you would do as a horror for this movie. What were you thinking? What was your angle? Uh. Just the idea that at the beginning of the movie you get a hint of a, a, a campfire tale. Probably, I because I make everything into a John Carpenter movie pretty much, I'd probably turn it more into the fog, right? You start off with this campfire tale of something happened at the Abbey. And then you have this lady coming in who's who, through no fault of her own, is being mistaken for a high-class socialite. But then as she tries to, you remember the movie that we watched, El Aura? The Yes, it it's an that. Argentinian thriller movie where a man becomes involved with a bank heist, right? Uh, yeah, like an armored truck heist. But he does it like completely on accident. That's what I would have. I would have Catherine sort of just keeping the sp- the plates spinning just out of pure curiosity, right? So as everyone approaches her and says like, oh, I heard this, she could be like, oh, well, maybe this, like she would allude to a bunch of stuff, but also her imagination would go wild and she would assume that other people would be conspiring against her for whatever reason. And I probably would put everyone in Northanger Abbey earlier or at least feel the effects of the Thorpes in Northanger Abbey. 
Like, even though they aren't there in, in this movie, they pretty much disappear for the last third of the movie. But you could still do a movie, I feel, where their presence and their actions still have an effect in Northanger Abbey. And maybe, like, Northanger Abbey is this amplification chamber for all of her crazy fantasies. And so then it becomes, like, the more she hangs out in one place, the crazier she gets. I basically want to see Felicity Jones go Sam Neill crazy. (laughs) (laughs) doesn't she have a movie where she does that though isn't there a movie where she's i'm thinking of claire foy has a movie like that they they uh, have very similar roles um yeah i i like that i i could definitely see a yellow wallpaper Mm -hmm. version of Catherine really leaning into the cerebral part of it Hmm. um i I know how often I talk on this podcast about disliking it was all a dream as a convention or like a twist, just because I I feel like it jerks you around as an audience member. And I'd rather know that it was an all a dream than make it a twist because the dread of knowing is more interesting to me. But when I thought about this movie, I actually thought of kind of a crazy sci-fi premise where, uh, you're going through the plot of Northanger Abbey. It's very Lynchian, just like you wanted, Brett. Uh, everything seems to be proceeding as normal, but then there's all these, um, what is the word, anachronistic, when there's modern things mm-hmm. that don't belong there. But then Catherine keeps stumbling upon these anachronistic details, like a book on how to build a Faraday cage or mm-hmm. something like that to block radio signals, which who knows about radio signals in Regency time. And then it all amounts to finding out that all of them are actually people who are in a Regency simulation that people have chosen to go into after the world was devastated by climate catastrophe. So it's Austin Land meets what Waterworld meets <laughs> yeah meets Waterworld dystopian future yeah it's it's a uh, Jane Austen meets the Matrix is yeah, what I, I would do say, or uh, this is a really old movie not a, I don't know how many people have seen uh, have either of you seen that movie the Thirteenth Floor no maybe. <laughs> It's an older sci-fi movie that I, I'm just going to spoil it for everyone because it's too old at this point, but about a man who figures out that he's part of a simulation within a simulation. So I don't know. You could do, you could make it very uh, Christopher Nolan layers upon layers, but then with a nice shiny core of Jane Austen. I like it. Very intriguing. I like the bath. I like the bathwater one the most, though. I really think Heather, yours is my favorite of Aww. everything we've talked about. I, I, I just love that idea. I, I mean, Pride and Prejudice and zombies move aside. I think we should definitely get Northanger Hunger Abbey into production. So. Wrapping things up here, just want to tell everybody where you can find us. We are on social media, Facebook, Instagram. You can also email us at necromancerpodcast at gmail.com. Heather, where can people find your writing or if they're interested in learning more, is there anything you'd like to plug? Um, All my 
publications are in scholarly journals, so I don't know how much they're going to appeal to people. Um, I did just do the Pop and Lock podcast talking about Wonder Woman back in January, oh. so that's out as well on um, all of their various places. Um, and there is um, an online Adam Smith's World website, and I have a couple of blog posts on there about the TV show The Good Place and the 18th century philosopher ah. Adam Smith and why he should be on there. So that's more of the sort of popular academic stuff that I've done. Well, I would definitely like to share that on our page, and we will. And, you know, JSTOR is kind of my love language, so <laughs> I, I definitely don't mind reading some of your more scholarly works. Uh, and, uh, yeah, so the Pop and Lock podcast as well, talking about Wonder Woman. Mm -hmm. Good to know. Except most of my things are on Academia EDU, so if people look there, they'll find me. Awesome. Well, let's go ahead and jump into Love Bites. This is, Heather, this is the fun part of the podcast where we just like to recommend things that uh, our listeners can get into. Is there anything that you'd like to recommend today? Um, actually, yeah. Since it's summer, I've been able to read for fun a lot more. And I just finished a novel, which actually I think because what it relays is so... Um, painful and terrifying. It should count as the horror genre, but unfortunately it's really historic fiction, um, which is the Book of Night Women. And it talks about the, um, it, the role or the plight of enslaved people in Jamaica during the 1800s and features an attempted slave rebellion, much like those that took place in Haiti, um, and is an incredibly powerful and moving novel. So The Book of Night Women, I think would be my current recommendation. The Book of Night Women, that sounds really interesting. I recently read The Black Count, which is a biography about uh, Alexander Dumas' father. And he came from Haiti or, I mean, they were calling it the, I think at the Americas at that point too. Uh, so I, I'd learned just a little bit about about some of this, but it'd be interesting to learn more. Yeah, they, they do a great job showing how corrupting the slavery system was, not just in terms of how it brutalized the enslaved, but also how it dehumanized the slavers as well. So it's a really, um, like I said, a very powerful read. That sounds really interesting. Brett, what would you like to recommend this week? Well, I'm not going to recommend a book for you to read, but I can recommend a movie. You can for still you listen to, to books. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, you can. Um, uh, actually, I was thinking about this because I knew Shira was going to approach this as like, why do men hate Jane Austen? So how much? dare you predict me? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, it wasn't a prediction so much as you asked me several times ahead of time. Why do you hate Jane Austen so much? Um, and so I wanted to kind of find the guy equivalent. And I think there is only one answer to this, which is Brotherhood of the Wolf. Uh, this movie is extremely silly. It is very goofy. It is melodramatic. It's basically an anime. It's I didn't realize how much of an anime it was. It's got some anime villain turns in it. Um, that are, are straight out of like Death Note or something. But 
The movie is, in 18th century France, the Chevalier de Fronsac and his Native American friend Manny are sent by the king to the Gavaudon province to investigate the killings of hundreds by a mysterious beast. And it is part spaghetti western, part martial arts, part conspiracy theory, part romance, part silly movie part like it's it is a mess of all of these different genres but the best way to describe it is like if you were to make a smoothie of all these genres <laughs> this movie is if you didn't leave it you leave the blender on too long and so every once in a while when you're taking a sip like you get a whole chunk of berry come up and you're like oh that was too much like that was too much that's what this movie is. It is like a nice little blending of weird genres. And then all of a sudden they throw the genre at you hard and it is clumsy and it is clunky, but it is a really cool movie about these, about corruption in France and these guys who have to fight a monster. That's a metaphor for the Catholic church and blah, 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 but it's, which is right. It's Castlevania. Right. Um, so I love it. It walks and, so Castlevania could run. Yes. However, the sad thing is this thing is not on streaming. I could not find it streaming anywhere. iTunes has it. Neither available. is French Kiss, which is very, very <laughs> criminal. Uh, iTunes has it available to stream for pre-order. It's available to pre-order, I think, on July 31st. So if you're a fan of this movie, it's coming out soon. However, this means I did have to go online and find one of those other ways to stream the movie. And however, I could not find a subtitled version. I could only find a dubbed version. And it is baffling to me how they did the dub, which is this movie takes place in France. And yet every character speaks with a British accent. (laughs) Oh, well, that's a requirement for all period movies, especially if you watched Rome. They all inexplicably have British accents there, too. Monica Bellucci has a little part in this movie, and Vincent Cassell has a little part in this movie. And it's very clear they do their own dubs because they speak with French accents and they talk like they talk. But everyone else is British, and it was so funny. But yeah, other than that, it's a good movie. And it is a period movie, so you did you did yeah. stick with that that theme. I I like that a lot. I'm pretty sure someone said indeed in Brotherhood of the Wolf. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> that's <even> very <laughs> <laughs> most ardently. Uh, so I I wanted to stick with the theme with my I have two recommendations here. Uh, I'll be quick with the first one. The first recommendation is a little reality show called Regency House Party, where they I, Heather is clapping. I'm assuming you've seen it. Yeah, yeah. I found it to be hilarious, yeah. uh, especially because Brett, like you, most of these people don't necessarily know about all of these restrictive social conventions. And so when you throw them into it, they resist very hard. And so the first episodes uh, involve a lot of people just, you know, fuming about the lack of freedom they have. But my favorite person on that entire show had to be the older woman playing the hostess because she is a true believer, you know, like, like aunt Lydia on a handmaid's tale. She got into the role and she became 
a Regency hostess and it's, it's worth it just for her. Uh, so yeah, I Regency house party, wherever you can stream it, find it, check it out. Uh, and then my other recommendation is I, I like Heather, I'm going to recommend a book, but it is a book that you can listen to Brett. And it's a book that has a male narrator. I like to, I find his work really good or I I like it. It, He kind of does this thing where he's very breathy with his voice and it could be just because it's a romance novel, but I would like to recommend Gentleman Jim by Mimi Matthews. And I've already recommended some Regency historical romance novels on this podcast. I think I've been talking about Bridgerton here since the very beginning. Mm. We we didn't get to really get into it, but I, I've already recommended Julia Quinn's work in the past. And I think, though, that there's some people who maybe you like Pride and Prejudice, but you're not quite ready to get into the crazy colorful world of Bridgerton and how sexualized and romantic it is. Maybe you want something that's just a little bit closer to historical uh, and maybe a little bit sweeter with the romance. I think that if you're new to historical romance, there's just so much that is out there and you can choose between whether or not you want something like Julia Quinn, who's, you know, relatively explicit Maybe that's not necessarily your jam. Well, I have the author for you. It's Mimi Matthews. She's great. I've never read a book by her that I didn't like. Gentleman Jim is kind of like, I would describe it as a Regency, angsty princess bride. There's highwaymen, there's adventure, there's duels. Catherine Moreland would love it. Henry Tilney would love it. And y'all would love it. Uh, so that's what I would recommend this week. Very nice. All right. Well, I guess that is all for today, folks. I bid you adieu. Oh, no. Or wait, wait what did you, you had a sign off, Brett? Go for yeah, it. Yeah, you've got to ask me how Big Daddy Tilney would end the podcast. <laughs> So to put this into context, Heather, not too long ago, we watched Ghosts of Mars, which is a John Carpenter movie with a character whose name is Big Daddy Mars. (laughs) And Big Daddy Mars only speaks in garbled nonsense. But how would Big Daddy Tilney sign us off, Brett? Big Daddy Tilney might say, now I must give you one smoke. And then we can be rational. Necromancer is produced by Brett Dorman and Shira Moore. The theme song is Symphonia 3 by Kevin McLeod on the album Oddities.